Good afternoon and welcome to Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. This month, our topic is 10 things you should know about endometriosis. Thank you for joining us today. We have a lot of great information to share with you. My name is Dr. Goulet and I'm here with Dr. Hanat Kramon. Nice to see you. All right. So, um, endometriosis is a very common infertility diagnosis that many patients either struggle with or wonder if it could be affecting their fertility journey. And it's one of those things that can be a little bit more difficult to diagnose. Uh, Dr. Carmon, what do you think are red flags when you have a patient that's worried that maybe it's endometriosis that's causing some difficulty? Yeah, so um, typically the diagnosis is made clinically. Um, it can be made surgically as well, um, but it doesn't have to be made that way. So when a patient tells me that they have uh, a lot of cramping with their periods, that they have pretty severe pelvic pain, that they require um, uh, you know, a fair amount of medications to control that pain, that kind of signals to me that endometriosis uh, may play a role. If they also report things like birth control pills made them feel better, or perhaps a previous pregnancy, they felt better at that time. Um, th those are kind of some of those red flags. We can also sometimes see ultrasound findings as well. So at times we can see um, endometriomas or kind of chocolate cysts within the ovaries. Those are typically um, uh, fluid-filled cysts that have a very typical appearance, um, and we call them chocolate cysts because they're kind of full of, of old blood and, um, and endometrial tissue, essentially. Um, I think that we can kind of go through these 10 things. Yes, um, yes. Since, you know, and, uh, and that, that might be a fun way to kind of get through all of, all of these. So let's see, 10 things you should know about endometriosis. All right. I think we should start with what is endometriosis? Okay, endometriosis is the growth of that endometrial tissue, the part that is on the inside of the uterine cavity that gets sloughed off and shed at, with every uh, menses. That's when that tissue starts to grow in places it doesn't belong. Uh, we often call that ectopic locations or locations that is outside of the uterine cavity. So it can grow on the fallopian tubes. It can grow on or inside the ovaries. When it grows inside the ovaries, we call that those endometriomas or those chocolate cysts that Dr. Carmon was just referring to. It can grow within the uterine muscle and it gets a special name when we see that and we call that adenomyosis. Adenomyosis can be a little bit tricky to diagnose sometimes, uh, although there can be ultrasound findings that are consistent with adenomyosis, like a large globular uterus or some specific echogenic patterns that we can see, it still can be tricky to diagnose by ultrasound in most circumstances. So if we have a patient that has known endometriosis elsewhere, that's supportive of, okay, well, maybe it's growing in the uterine muscle, but, um, but sometimes it may take an MRI or even ultimately after a patient is done childbearing and they have a hysterectomy, looking at that uterine muscle under the microscope to diagnose that adenomyosis. Um, but regardless, wherever that uh, endometrial tissue is growing, that's in a not normal location, 
those can have effects on uh, the ability for the fertility to reach its optimum potential. So if it's growing on the fallopian tubes, it can cause scarring and um, uh, it can cause the tubes to become occluded so that they're not open so that the sperm and the egg and the embryo can't travel down into the uterus. If they're growing on the ovaries, for example, it can cause inflammation and irritation that can reduce egg quality and egg number. Um, and it can, uh, it can be found anywhere else within the body as well. So if it's on the bowel or the bladder, it can lead to significant pain uh, during certain times of the cycle. Um, interesting bit of trivia. Endometriosis has been found on every organ except the spleen. So it can be found in the brain. There are women who have uh, bleeding episodes and coughing episodes with their menses because of endometriosis in their lungs. It's been found in fetuses. And last bit of trivia, it's even been found in men, which doesn't make any sense, but it's there. It's been reported in the case report. So uh, endometriosis. Glands and stromen places it doesn't belong. <laughs> yeah, so um, the the interesting thing about endometriosis is that although it's it's so simple, it's endometrial glands that um, kind of end up in places where they don't belong. Um, it, it's a little bit unclear how exactly it gets there. Um, the prevailing theory is uh, that most of this is caused by retrograde menstruation. So, you know, obviously uh, when a woman menstruates, her endometrial lining sloughs and most of that tissue comes out through the cervix and through the vagina. Uh, but some of that tissue obviously is going to go backwards you know, through the fallopian tubes. Um, and that, you know, you can imagine is why it'll implant in the fallopian tubes in the ovaries and the pelvis. And so uh, that retrograde menstruation theory makes sense, um, you know, be, uh, in the setting of the fact that most endometriosis is, is pelvic. Um, and, you know, there are, are lab models where when endometriosis is placed on various organs, it'll happily start to grow. Um, but that does not explain how endometriosis is found in the lungs, how endometriosis is found, you know, in the brain and in some of these other places. And so uh, there is probably some transport of endometrial tissue um, through the vasculature, or there, there has even been the thought that um, the kind of spontaneous growth without any type of transport from menstrual tissue. Uh, it does seem to be genetic, so um, or at least not not necessarily um, with a clear heritable pattern, but. If your family members, your close family members have endometriosis, then you are more likely to have endometriosis. And it's always a question of, you know, if everybody has retrograde menstruation, how come not everybody has endometriosis? Um, and, and so there, there is something sort of um, abnormal about the endometrial tissue um, that probably makes it more likely to implant in places where it shouldn't. And the thought is, relating that to fertility, is that um, that abnormality, which causes it to kind of go funny places, um, is also present in the endometrial lining and potentially may impact the implantation of the embryo as well. Um, 
And of course, there's lots of other ways that endometriosis can affect fertility. The classic way that endometriosis affects fertility is through blocking the fallopian tubes. If there is a bunch of endometrial tissue around the fallopian tubes, it can cause a bunch of scarring, just kind of scar the tube shut. That's the sort of simple explanation. Um, but, you know, as Dr. Goulet alluded to, there are also other types of endometriosis, which may affect things as well. So endometriomas within the ovaries that can potentially impact the ovarian reserve um, and impact the function of the ovaries and um, the eggs themselves. Um, endometriosis within the musculature of the uterus, uh, that's going to impact the function of the uterus and affect implantation and things like that. Um, and as I mentioned before, possibly the uh, the kind of inherent characteristics of the endometrium within the uterus may not be as amenable to embryo implantation, uh, you know, for, for various, various reasons. And then lastly, there may be some inflammatory components that's affecting implantation. So even if there's endometriosis in the pelvis and kind of other places and not necessarily exactly around the uterus, the body's response to kind of fight those lesions um, and, and create an immune response may potentially affect um, the implantation and create kind of an unfriendly environment for implantation as well. Yes, I agree with all of those things. Um, <clears throat> I'm doing it. I'm sorry, Dr. Kerman. I'm doing a terrible job of adhering to our We've, number one, I know. Number two, number we, three. We, we had so we have this whole list. list of, you know, because we called it ten things you should know about endometriosis. But I think we're. I think um, this discussion is going yeah. well. You're, you're, you'll get all good, of it. It'll be fine. We'll, we'll get the ten things. things. Yes, maybe more than ten. Maybe more than ten. But one um, of these things here that we did want to mention is the fact that it's a very common diagnosis as, as frequently as one in 10 women um, actually have endometriosis and may not be diagnosed with it. And I think that's one of the most common questions that I get, especially when I am discussing with my patients the possibility that they may have unexplained infertility. Uh, a lot of times my patients ask me, but doctor, how do you know we're not overlooking endometriosis? And, and then, you know, what if we're doing all of the wrong treatments because you're, you're, um, we overlooked this? And the truth of the matter is, is that whether it be unexplained infertility or endometriosis, if we don't have any obvious clear signs, it, you're right, it, it may very well could be endometriosis, but we would treat both of them similarly with our fertility treatments. Um, even though we would, we like to give a precise treatment for a precise di diagnosis, um, when it comes to overcoming either unexplained infertility or the subfertility that endometriosis can result in, um, simply by doing super ovulation or by, by giving fertility medications or by boosting uh, implantation with inseminations or doing IVF, a lot of that will help overcome the subfertility issues of both of those diagnoses. So it's not necessary to confirm whether or not endometriosis is the culprit or not in most circumstances. Certainly, if there are other concerns because of the endometriosis, if there's large endometriomas 
or if there's a significant amount of pain with each endometrial cycle or excuse me, each menstrual cycle, those things do need to be addressed and those things may warrant a confirmatory diagnosis uh, with surgery, for example. Yeah, um, so I think a lot of patients will ask, is pregnancy possible with endometriosis or their common? And you know, some patients will um, request a consultation even before they try to conceive because they know they have a history of endometriosis. Um, and, and the answer is definitely yes, uh, pregnancy is possible with endometriosis. Um, interestingly, you know, the, it doesn't seem to have a huge association with the level of severity of the endometriosis. Some people have very severe endometriosis, have no issues getting pregnant, and some people have mild disease, um, have trouble. So there isn't a very strong association there. Um, but certainly patients with endometriosis may need help or, or may not sort of like the rest of the world. Um, however, it, it, again, it does depend on what the issue is. Okay, so if a patient has endometriosis and has not tried to conceive, um, I will typically recommend attempting to conceive, you know, prior to really um, uh, doing any invasive testing or anything like that. If a patient with endometriosis is having trouble conceiving, uh, then we need to start evaluating what the issue is. First of all, is there an issue other than endometriosis or, um, or is it the endometriosis that's causing potentially blocked fallopian tubes? So we might do an HSG to evaluate the fallopian tubes, see if they're open. HSG is a test typically performed um, with a radiologist where we uh, kind of push dye into the uterus and take some x-rays to see if the fallopian tubes are open. Um, if endometriosis has caused some scarring and has caused the endometriosis to uh, cause the fallopian tubes to obstruct, really the best course of action is in vitro fertilization after that. Um, people can do surgery to kind of help remove some of the scarring um, and that will help with pain at times, um, but it usually doesn't really help improve um, the obstruction of fallopian tubes. Um, if the fallopian tubes are open, but there are large endometriomas within the ovaries, for example, we know that that can impact fertility through a number of ways, sometimes can unfortunately impact ovarian reserve and, and the function of, of the ovaries. Um, and then there's kind of a question um, which the community has kind of gone back and forth about whether or not to remove endometriomas prior to fertility treatments. Um, what most of the literature is suggesting now, and again, there's no great answer to that because removing endometriomas can potentially damage the underlying ovarian tissue and make things worse. Um, the typical recommendation is not to remove endometriomas prior to doing fertility treatments, unless they're very large, um, or unless we're kind of very unsure as to whether these are endometriomas. For example, are we worried this is something worse? Is this cancer? Uh, so you know, if if it's if these are very large cysts, um, then you know we may want to remove them anyway uh, as soon as possible. And then the other reason to remove them first is if a patient's really suffering, you know, they're in a lot of pain and they're not going to really be able to withstand in vitro fertilization, then, you know, I'll recommend that they remove these endometriomas first prior, prior to moving forward. Or, of course, if we can't access the ovaries, if the ovaries are very high in the pelvis or kind of stuck because, oh, sorry, because of the endometriosis, um, then, you know, then obviously surgical management would be helpful in that regard. 
Very good. Um, another question that I frequently get from my patients is, but you know, how do I know if this is me? Like, what would those risk factors be for me to have endometriosis? And I know Dr. Carmon touched on, uh, you know, if you have pain, if you have uh, cyclical uh, pain with your periods, and certainly if we see these ultrasound findings and family history. Um, but it's um, also good to know that there's no um, predilection based off of race or ethnicity or nationality. I know doctors love to ask that on their intake forms because a lot of other conditions such as diabetes or hypertension may have um, prevalence in certain groups more than others, but endometriosis doesn't discriminate. So it's one of those things where um, any woman can be affected with it, uh, even if you're not having pain. So there are individuals that end up having uh, an ultrasound or a surgery and we find these findings and they're like, but you know, I, I never had a painful period, but we don't know until we start to go looking for these things as part of your workup. Um, and it's super common. I mean, it affects one in 10 women of reproductive age. So, um, you know, if you meet these kind of criteria or you have these risk factors, it's, it's very, very possible that you really do have endometriosis. Um, and so what do we do when we think that you have endometriosis? Uh, and, and again, it, it depends on what your goals are. So, um, oftentimes patients with endometriosis have kind of one of two goals. So one might be stop the pain. One might be get pregnant. Um, and unfortunately the treatment for one or, you know, oftentimes doesn't really help with the other. Um, so the mainstay of treatment for endometriosis, either surgical or medical, um, medical treatment usually involves suppressing the ovaries. Uh, and again, if you think about it, it makes sense because it's really um, the estrogen, the hormones, and the ovaries, which are kind of um, fueling the endometrial tissue to grow. So when you kind of shut that axis down, um, the endometrial tissue and endometriosis kind of stops growing both within the uterus and elsewhere. Uh, but in shutting down that, you know, that axis, we're also preventing pregnancy. So for example, birth control pills are really a great first line treatment for endometriosis. They're going to stop that cyclical pain for many patients, uh, but they'll also you know, prevent you from getting pregnant. Um, if patients want to get pregnant because their fallopian tubes are blocked, et cetera, then you know, doing things like in vitro fertilization can be helpful, but, you know, certainly not, not going to help pain. And at times patients can experience kind of endometriosis flares from various types of fertility treatments because we're stimulating the ovaries. Um, so it can be tough to find that balance. Surgical therapy can be helpful. I mentioned that we try not to really remove endometriomas unless they're large, really in the way, or we're worried that they may be cancerous. Um, you know, but removing those, that type of tissue can be helpful for pain. The literature has, they're, they're kind of two famous um, trials that uh, were done looking at surgical management of endometriosis and natural fertility, not IVF, but natural fertility afterwards. Um, and there was kind of a slight positive net effect 
uh, for surgery. In other words, there was a kind of a very mild, very small benefit to doing surgery for patients and then seeing a very small positive impact on their natural fertility afterwards. Um, we're not talking about removing endometriomas necessarily. Again, we're talking about just perhaps kind of burning or removing lesions wherever we see them, you know, in the pelvis and the fallopian tubes and, and all that type of stuff. However, if you kind of combine those, um, those studies, uh, the number needed to treat is like, you know, one in 12 one or something yeah. like that. So you would have to treat a lot of patients with invasive surgery to potentially benefit one of them. So in, in other words, the benefits are pretty small. Um, and so as physicians, we're, I think we've kind of, fertility docs at least, have kind of moved away from recommending kind of uh, this type of treatment for patients. When we want to decrease that endometriotic load for somebody, then um, we'll often recommend the medical therapies, which we can get into a little bit. Prior to the treatment, then we'll kind of do the treatment, and then uh, we can, you know, resume the therapy later after pregnancy or um, kind of in between the ovarian stimulation and implantation phase, if that's the way that we're going. Uh, with endometriosis, um, we, we do try to avoid some of the more extreme interventions like surgery nowadays. Um, and I think here at FIH, we're very embracing of uh, supporting a sort of whole body approach and, a, and optimizing natural fertility and encouraging the use of supplements if our, if our patients are interested in those things. The problem with endometriosis is that there's not a lot of natural things that you can do or lifestyle changes that you can make in order to suppress um, the inflammation and the cycle and the damage that endometriosis causes. So this is one of those situations where I uh, encourage my patients to seriously consider if they're not actively trying to conceive, if they know that's a few years down the road, uh, even though uh, an individual may be more of the, well, I don't like to take unnecessary pills sort of stance, which I I, I understand and, and, and truly respect, but this is one of those conditions that I would encourage my patients to think about um, being on hormonal suppression to prevent some of the long-term damage that endometriosis can cause over the years. So if you're not actively trying to conceive, trying one of those medications like birth control pills, there's newer medications out that are even stronger than that, that are oral. And ultimately, some patients may need injections to put them in medical menopause to help them with some of their symptoms. But we do think that suppressing the growth of the endometriosis has long-term benefit for our patients and helping them with their future fertility. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, um, there's no cure for endometriosis. We can only either remove it um, or kind of temporarily stop it from forming. But while your endometrial tissue is still active and sort of hormonally active, you're still going to have microscopic disease and that microscopic disease is going to turn into macroscopic disease or kind of lesions that are visible over time if you're not actively suppressing the ovaries or 
you know, removing things with surgery. So um, you really do have to keep on top of it. And even patients who do surgery, um, you know, and extensive resection, they do need some type of management with medication afterwards, at least really in the, in the long term. Um, to help with potential, you know, fertility in the future, but also um, just with pain in general. So it is a chronic disease. Um, it, it's not, you know, it's not something that can be completely, uh, completely stopped. Um, although the thought is that, you know, removing the uterus and, you know, the ovaries is um, thought to be somewhat curative. Um, but even with that, you know, patients who already have a fair amount of scarring and things like that, oftentimes will still continue to have, continue to have pain. And certainly removing all of the, the pelvic organs um, have effects that, that we, we don't want. Side effects. Yeah, right. side effects that we really don't want patients to experience. Uh, down the road. So when patients do choose things like medical management or surgical management and um, want fertility, we encourage them to do that in a pretty close time frame after those interventions because that's typically when the pelvis is the happiest because the endometriosis has been treated, it's not interfering as much, um, but we know that eventually it will start to uh, brew back up again. So we've got a, a a time window there where we can see possible maximal benefit um, with fertility treatment after one of those interventions. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the important thing to know is that if you have endometriosis, um, that's okay. You know, we, we have a lot of different ways to manage it, a lot of different ways to deal with it. It's common. We have medical therapy, we have surgical therapy, we have fertility treatments. Um, and we definitely urge you to see someone who's really familiar in treating endometriosis and comfortable in treating endometriosis, whether that's medically, surgically, or fertility-wise, um, and is also comfortable with referring you to a specialist for one of these things, you know, medical management, surgical management, or fertility treatment, um, because it is a complex disease and oftentimes needs kind of multiple people to, to take care of it. Um, I think that's kind of what I wanted to go over. You know, was there anything else to add? I think that is uh, pretty comprehensive. Again, if you have any questions, you know, please feel free to make an appointment with us um, or pipe up here on our on our Facebook. Thank you for joining us today. Um, this is an Ask the Docs of Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. For more information, please check out our website at ivfcenterhawaii.com. Um, Again, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. We hope you will join us again next time. Aloha. Aloha.